guns. Since the founding of America, we've had a strange love affair with these things. From using them to claim our independence from the British, to conquering the West, losing millions of soldiers to them during the Civil War, and our part in their development from Samuel Colt to Eugene Stoner, we have both loved and hated guns since we could get our hands on them. And now, Americans across the political spectrum are talking about them again. Who should own them? Can I fire my helicopter mount machine gun into the air like a fucking American, or do I need to buy a permit to even look on Amazon for a BB gun? Who's right and who's wrong? Writing down this episode topic, I knew I'd come into it with a bit more, I guess, shall we say, some nuanced perspective than most Americans, but now I'm sitting here recording it, I find myself kind of wishing that that was a complete and total lie. I, I wish that people left their brains in when they talked about guns. Uh, this topic is pretty deep, and it's going to get a lot of people up in, uh, well, up in arms. So let's get to this episode of Why Aren't You Talking About This? Hello everyone, and welcome to Why Aren't You Talking About This? Welcome to the second episode ever of this podcast, whether it's being posted in your local Fuck This Guy subreddit, your friends or family humoring me, or you found this while desperately shouting into the internet for help, thank you so much for listening. It means the world. I am your host, William. I'll be your guide through the topic each episode, and will hopefully not get myself killed or cancelled. Uh, since this is being scripted and recorded in a batch with episode 1 and episode 3, I don't currently have any updates, pressing concerns, or other issues to address. Luckily, I haven't gotten any angry, time-traveling emails to tell me to fuck off yet. So, instead, I'll give a recap of what it is I do here. So, every week, well, every two weeks, I'm not gonna do this shit every week, uh, Every two weeks, I'll be picking a contemporary political, social, or economic topic that is either really divisive or misunderstood. Then I'll present to you some of the history and information I've found on it, general opinions and beliefs around it, and then I'll tell you what I think. Since we all know early 20-something-year-old men either get really into podcasting or crypto, and, well, I mean, the podcasting bubble hasn't burst yet. So, here I am. Now let's get into it. Alright, so as you heard in the intro, this week's topic is on guns and gun control. This is kind of an inescapable topic in America, especially with the level of gun violence we've been seeing over the past 30 years or so. So, I'm going to walk into this expecting that you at least know what a gun is. And to any of you who might be listening from beyond America's borders and don't know this, we're actually legally required as Americans to recite the Second Amendment from memory while touching a rifle to get a driver's license. And... It's also a common American tradition to leave a loaded Glock in your baby's crib so they can defend themselves at night. Okay, so before I lie to you too much more, let's talk about guns in general. 
Now this section is going to be more talking about modern guns and how they work and just some foundational knowledge and some like physics to understand them. When other things come up in the history, we'll talk about how they work then. So what exactly is a gun in general? Well, they are, to quote the dictionary, a ranged weapon designed to use a shooting tube to launch typically solid projectiles, but can also project pressurized liquid, gas, or even charged particles, unquote. And I gotta say, I, I kind of love the phrase shooting tube. I, I think I might have found a new name for my peen. But anyways, how modern guns work is actually pretty simple. First, we start with the cartridge. This usually brass container has a bullet at the front and the primer at the back and is filled with gunpowder. The primer, by the way, is the part that blows up the gunpowder. When the cartridge is loaded into firing position, i.e. into the chamber, you just point at what you want to get motherfucking wrecked and pull the trigger. Pulling this trigger launches a small metal pin called the firing pin directly in the primer and boom! It explodes and the bullet goes racing out of the barrel and straight into the thigh of the KSC manager that had the audacity to tell you that they don't supersize the family buckets of chicken. The reason this happens, besides dad being belt happy when you were a kid, is because a gun is basically a bomb with one piece of shrapnel and a hole at the end to escape out of. And essentially the easiest place for all that energy to go out of is the barrel and the bullet is just kind of along for the ride. Um, shotgun cartridges are similar but slightly different. And while most of the physics above works, the cartridge is absolutely fucking wrecked in the explosion. And to make sure that the powder isn't mixing with the shrapnel you have in there, and also just so they all generally go the same direction instead of just blasting into the barrel and the chamber, there's a wad of something, like cotton or plastic, that keeps everything under control until it comes out of the gun's urethra. Now, also we need to talk about action. And no, not the kind I'm not getting. Action, when talking about guns, is the process of loading the next cartridge. First, we have bolt action. This is when after the shot is fired, you need to manually pull back on a bolt on the outside of the rifle to open the chamber and launch the empty cartridge out before the next round takes its place. War movies and snipers love this one. Now, war movies love it because it just looks dramatic, and snipers like it because it doesn't have a lot of moving parts and is a lot easier to account for when you're firing. Lever action is when there's a bar, usually around the trigger, that can be pulled forward. Pulling this bar forward opens the chamber and drags the next shot into place behind it. Now this is most famous on the Winchester rifle, and these fucking guys are really fast for a manual action rifle. It can usually carry quite a bit of extra ammo. Similar to lever action is pump action. These guns have a rack, nice, on it that you pull back on to clear the chamber and push in the next round. You'll see these a lot on shotguns. These guys are like honey badgers. They have never even understood the concept of a fuck or giving anything but merciful oblivion, and you really don't want to hear one when you weren't expecting it. Notably, though, pump actions are really good when you need a quick but an accurate shot. Then you have break action. These guns are pretty rare nowadays and are really tedious. Basically, between shots, you have to unlock and snap open the chamber like your chassis belt when you pee between each shot and manually pull the cartridges out. Or, alternatively, a lot of more modern ones will automatically eject them, but still. Uh, cartridges, mind you, that are pretty warm. Um, these are really only seen with shotguns, but some of the earlier firearms use this. And now, this isn't to say that they don't have uses. I mean, firstly, they're ambidextrous, meaning... 
you don't have to worry about the empty shell casings hitting you in the chest. Secondly, they're really easy to maintain, and you can put rounds that are too long into them without killing yourself or jamming the gun. And they can also be really, really, really short, and can even have interchangeable barrels, making them really good for when you want to commit crimes. Not that I know. Anyways, uh, then you have revolver action, which in my opinion is the smooth brain answer to your chamber being empty. Basically, the chamber or chambers plus barrel rotates either manually or automatically to the next one with a shot. Well, sure, this sounds like it would save time with really old guns, and it certainly did. For modern guns, there are very few revolvers besides handguns and heavy machine guns. And, you know, this can get really goofy, too, because sure, six chambers is good, but you could have 27. And because the whole damn thing rotates, the chambers can get stuck pretty easy in comparison to other guns, so you need to invest more in cleaning and maintenance. Now then you have semi-automatic and automatic. These ones are really closely related, but are slightly different. Basically, when you fire a gun, some of the force comes back at you as recoil. You know, basic science shit. Well, these guns use the force of the explosion in the gun and the recoil to automatically yeet the cartridge out of the gun and put the next bullet into place. The difference is that with the semi-automatic, you need to release and press the trigger to fire the next round. For the automatic, the firing pin will just start bouncing like your girl in my dick and keep firing until the chamber is empty. Nice. We're also going to quickly talk about the different categories of guns before we really jump into the anatomy of one. So, first we have the handgun. These guns are weapons designed to be held in one hand, obviously. Now, in most common language, these are usually just called pistols, but pistol actually refers specifically to a handgun whose chamber doesn't rotate. Meanwhile, the revolver's chamber just gets smooth brain rotated. Long guns are the opposite, being weapons meant to be operated in two hands. Shotguns are smooth bore guns, either fire shrapnel or shot. Those are small lead balls to turn your guts into beef stew. Rifles, however, are guns meant to be shoulder-fired long-range weapons. Now, there is one major subcategory of rifle called assault rifles. And before everyone flips their shit on me, calm down. Now, some people think every rifle that looks like a soldier or white supremacist would carry it as an assault rifle, while other people say that the term is leftist propaganda to demonize guns. Now... The truth is actually locked tamer, so they were invented by the Nazis. Ooh. Never mind. Anyways, the rifles meant for rapid fire, being almost entirely all automatic weapons used at long range or in close quarters when assaulting a position. Now, finally, you have machine guns, and these guns are meant to spray an area with automatic and questionably accurate gunfire and mostly come in two forms, submachine guns and machine guns. Uh, submachine guns aren't just submissive guns, they're just smaller than actual machine guns, which means you can hand them out to infantry instead of dedicating a lot of concern to the tactical needs of a big fucking gun. So, now we're going to talk about the actual anatomy, starting with the end of the gun that you want to be on. The very end of a gun is called the stock, which is what you hold on to when you're shooting. The very end that rests on your shoulder is called the butt. Now, the stock actually reaches around to the front on most guns. Now, this is called the foreskin, but most gun owners say forestock. Uh, the forestock is where your forward hand sits. For handguns, the anatomy is a bit different, where instead of stock, the term is grip. This is 
just the handle that you hold on to. Attached to the stock is the ever important trigger, you know, the part of the gun that you jerk off and the bullets come out. Now, to make sure that nothing premature happens, the trigger for almost all modern guns have something called a trigger guard. This keeps the trigger from getting pulled accidentally. And, yeah, you know, it's very similar to the reason why us bedick people wear pants, so nothing can accidentally jerk us off. Closely related to the safety feature is a device reasonably called the safety. When activated, it either cuts the trigger off from the rest of the firing mechanism or stops the trigger from moving. Which is really uncomfortable thinking about with the metaphor of the trigger being a dick. I'm, I'm sorry. So, above the trigger is the chamber and action mechanism. The chamber is where the bullet that will go into the meaty KFC manager's thigh sits, while the action mechanism is the term for all the moving parts involved in sending the man to the hospital over chicken. The receiver is the part of the gun where all the science shit happens, including the firing pin and chamber. Now, on a handgun, the firing pin is still usually a hammer. and No, not a handheld hammer, you fucking idiot. It's the thing that the totally cool and justified action hero uses in the movies to make the gun they're holding even more intimidating. You know, like when they're interrogating someone and they pull that thing back, that's the hammer. And the final part of the gun, the part that that KFC manager sees while rethinking his career choice, while you're really underthinking your life choices, is the barrel. This is the metal tube that the bullet comes out of. The very end is called the muzzle, where the bullet seats fresh air for the half seconds as in traveling directly into an underpaid and overworked food service manager's leg. The inside of the barrel is called the bore, and the back attached to the chamber is called the breech. Because, you know, that's where the hole is, i.e. the breech. Almost any gun, with maybe the exception of shotguns, also has something called a sight. Sights are basically prongs at the front of the barrel and near the back, that if you're trying to be more careful about where you're shooting, would help you aim the barrel directly at what you wanted dead. Okay, so now that we've gone over how they work and the anatomy, we should all be on the same page. Oh, and, and by the way, to foreign listeners, this is why Americans are so fucking dumb. Uh, first to third grade is all about understanding how guns work, and then fourth and fifth grade is how not to get shot. Anyways, let's get into the history. Alright, now compared to our last episode, the history of guns is going to be a lot shorter. So in the 10th century, or 900 ADs if you're kinky, the Chinese first began to use gunpowder and fireworks. Now, at this time, fireworks were used not only for entertainment, but also to celebrate things like weddings and rituals to scare off evil spirits. Which, you know, I gotta say, I think those spirits are probably right to get the fuck out of there. Now, while most historical things would love to say that the Chinese didn't do anything else to gunpowder besides fireworks for weird non-Western European exotic rituals, this isn't true. They, very much like every other human on the planet, use this new wondrous invention to murder the motherfucking shit out of people. Because around the same time, the Chinese developed and began using the fire lance. Now, these weapons were essentially spears, pikes, halberds, or lances, obviously, that a firework at the end or a bamboo tube filled with gunpowder and shrapnel. And when the fuse ran out, the firework exploded or the tube launched shrapnel. Now, these weapons weren't exactly what I would call effective. Most records of this early version talk about how they were single-use weapons, since, you know, it's a spear with a bomb on it. But if you have a couple dudes with these, and there's a bunch of horses charging at you, it's pretty good. You know, since the natural enemy of the horse is the bomb. Now, fast forward about three centuries, and the Chinese had largely replaced these weapons with a much more modern version, the hand cannon. Basically, they realized 
It's actually a lot cooler if it didn't fucking explode after firing. So the pole got shorter and shorter, while the actual exploding thing slowly transformed into basically a metal jug made of iron. So they basically stopped focusing on the boring, shitty, bitch boy lance part and started focusing on the cool, hip, alpha male specimen cannon part. Also, going back in time slightly, by the early 1300s, some records saying as early as 1304, the Arabic nations of the Middle East were also using gunpowder. Now, these early records indicate they tied bombs to arrows, but reasonably one would assume they would start using hand cannons at some point too, especially because for some reason historians, at least I found, didn't mention <laughs> them using hand cannons. Uh, but at this time until the 1840s, uh, most, if not all, guns were muzzle loaders, and you had to jam whatever you were shooting down the business end. And, you know, like sounding your wiener, sometimes you stuffed it down too hard and blew your face off. Then in the 1400s, Europe entered the game big time. Now, at this point in history, gunpowder was a known thing. It had been used across East Asia, the Middle East, North Africa, and Europe. But Europeans finally decided, oh wow, this is pretty neat, and started to really focus on gunpowder weaponry. And this is the first time that we see that gun technology really takes off whenever people are killing the shit out of each other. Now, the European hand cannons, still having a pole, slowly got phased out as the arquebus came into existence. And a lot of this innovation was because the 15th and 16th centuries in Europe were fucking bloodbaths. Now, the amount of war and civil unrest happening across the continent was insane especially considering that the gun was an effective tool against armor and relatively easy to use by just about anyone. So they become very useful in uprising to kill armored nobles or defending against rampaging crusaders. The arquebus, invented in the mid-1400s, was a gun that was a smoothbore, so no rifling, with a matchlock mechanism that was usually placed on a stand before firing or is hooked into a piece of fortification. Of course, previous to this, the matchlock mechanism was invented. So, before this, when you fired a gun, you had to separately light a match or fuse, and then either be very stupid and hope to load your weapon before the fuse hit the powder and you fucking died, or had to balance a very volatile powder mixture inside of the weapon without dumping it while also trying to light a match. Now, the matchlock fixed all this by giving the weapon a very simple trigger attached to a wheel that rotated when the trigger was pulled. Now, attached to the wheel, obviously, was an already lit fuse. So, cut out the part where you had to balance the gun and a lit match in one hand and pour gunpowder into, into it with the other. The good part is that, obviously, it makes the gun a lot safer and easier to use on your end, and harder to spill the very expensive and very explosive black powder. The bad side is that if it rained or was, you know, slightly damper than your mom's, it would be shirtless or north of the Mediterranean by a few inches. Uh, good fucking luck lighting the match. And if you were trying to ambush someone or keep a low profile during a night battle, this is a lot harder when your primary weapon is literally on fire. Also mentionable during this period, rifling was invented, but was basically just ignored. Now, rifling is a process of making grooves in the barrel to cause the bullet to spin, which makes it more accurate. Why no one seemed to necessarily care about using it? I couldn't tell you. So then from the arquebus, came the musket, a weapon that was basically the same, except that it was longer and more popular to hand out. Part of this was the invention of the wheel lock in 1515, a firing mechanism that made it even easier to shoot a gun. So now, instead of 
still needing to light a match, the trigger was connected to a hammer device holding a piece of flint. The trigger was pulled, the flint sparked off an iron wheel and shot sparks into the pan where the gunpowder was stored, and then, boom, the gun fired. Now, this made the musket a feasible weapon to put in the hands of infantry en masse. The other good things are that you're able to sit with the weapon cocked for a while instead of needing to keep the flame burning, and you can shoot a lot faster than a match, than a match lock. Unfortunately, the wheel lock also required a special little spander like an Ikea table to reset it, and was also expensive as fuck to fix, and you had to take it apart to clean it. I mean, luckily for soldiers on the field, this was quickly replaced with first the cheaper snap lock, which reversed the process by smashing a piece of steel into the flint, and the much more superior flint lock. Now, flint locks are different from the previous two in a major way. Unlike the other guns, this one had a safety. The frizzen, or the metal plate you use to make sparks, covered the black powder pan, meaning that you could have the gun partially cocked, and if you pulled the trigger by accident, it wouldn't launch sparks in the barrel, and then a bullet into your friend George by accident. Now, these things were great battlefield weapons and stayed around for a long time. From their invention to the mid-1800s, a period of nearly 300 years. And they were cheap, tough, reliable, and relatively safe compared to the other options. And the only downside was still pretty slow. Uh, granted, this was helped a little with the invention of the paper cartridge in, in the 1540s which stored some amount of gunpowder and the bullet together to make reloading not only quicker, more consistent, and something that didn't need a lot of training. And because it's a lot easier to put a cartridge into the barrel and try to figure out how much powder to pour in to make the gun fire, but not turn into a pipe bomb while someone's trying to kill you. And now we jump all the way to 1807, when a man by the name of Reverend Alexander John Forsyth invented the percussion cap. Now, Unlike other gun inventions, this one wasn't invented to make mass murder easier. Reverend Forsyth, being a man of God, didn't make some realization while shooting an entire family one by one. Rather, while bird hunting, he realized that birds don't like getting shot and had learned what the smoke coming from the gun meant and would avoid his shot. So using fulminates, chemicals that are friction-sensitive explosives, discovered in 1800, he patented the design for the percussion cap, a replacement for the external pan of powder. This quickly caused the invention of the percussion lock, which is like a flint lock without as tedious of a reload, instead using the percussion cap. And notably, you didn't have to carry massive barrels of temperature, moisture-sensitive, high explosives everywhere you went. And by the mid-19th century, the percussion cap almost entirely phased out the flint lock. Then in 1824, the first bolt-action rifles were invented based off of earlier breech-loader designs. Reach loaders are essentially what all modern guns are. Rather than loading from the muzzle, you load the weapon from the back of the barrel, or as we discussed earlier, the breech. These guns were then adopted for standard use by the Prussian army in 1847, which is actually pretty early, and most militaries didn't adopt their use until almost the end of the 1800s. But there's also some timeline weirdness, because while well, breech loaders were invented in the 18th century, Martin von... Oh boy... Martin von Waterndorf uh, officially invented them in 1837. Now, granted, his design for the breech-loading mechanism was different than what existed previously and is more refined, but it's really weird because he's kind of given credit for inventing the whole ass thing. You know, it's like if you were the editor for a group project and the teacher came by and told you, hmm, yes, the only person doing work. 
you get the credit. As though everyone else racking their brains on this did fuck all. Also, the first revolvers were officially invented, but I hesitated to count that because the you know, smooth brain. Uh, around the same time, cartridges were beginning to adapt as well, since in 1847, a Paris gunsmith by the name of B. Hallier invented the firing pin. This caused the cartridges to go through a massive evolution, as more and more of them were being made of either paper metal mixtures or entirely out of metal. This also caused most cartridges to become either rimfire or centerfire cartridges. Basically, a bullet that has a primer either on the edge or in the middle. Of these kind of cartridges that came out on top was the brass centerfire. Then the biggest gun invention probably ever was developed. The machine gun, also called the Maxim gun, was invented by Hiram Maxim. This, alongside other heavy weapons technology, helped in the eventual start of the First World War, as nations were getting so war-horny looking at these weapons, capable of massacring entire villages of impoverished colonized people, before tea that they let a relatively minor coup turn Europe into ghosts and Nazis. Now, the machine gun is also attributed to one of the main reasons why World War I was fought in trenches, since reasonably no one wants to charge directly into a weapon turning your friends into pea soup. And during this period, between 1918 and 1845, the Germans are responsible for the invention of both the submachine gun and the assault rifle. Good job, Germany. I'm sure those inventions have absolutely no hard feelings attached to them in any way, shape, or form. Alright, but now we're going to go back in time and get more specifically American, since yeah, this is a podcast about how shitty America is at things. And we first start in 1513. This is important because this is when the first Spaniard stepped foot into Florida, and just like any proud Floridian nowadays, most likely immediately fired their matchlock into the skull of a poor non-European minding their own business and claimed standard ground laws. I'm only half kidding. Or quarter kidding. Uh, but basically from then all the way up to 1775, guns had an interesting place in America. Across the eastern part of the continent, they're a mixture of necessary for survival and frontier and colonial living, as well as a dick measuring contest between colonial powers. Also in the same areas, it was a means to fight back against the colonizers with their own guns or to settle scores between tribal groups. And basically, just about as soon as the gun hit the shores, more than any weapon, it came to symbolize colonization, both conforming to it and fighting it. Now, in 1775, things changed ever so slightly. I mean, unless you're American. In that case, 1775 and 1776 are the single most important years to have ever occurred in history. And that includes the year Jesus was born and when the colors red, white, and blue were first put next to each other. But that aside, during the Revolutionary War period between 1775 and 1783, bet you didn't know it lasted that long, guns were used heavily by the fledgling America to fight for independence. Now, being both untrained and oftentimes outgunned, colonists relied pretty heavily on the guns they had from their frontier living. Now, these guns were a lot more accurate hunting rifles, being complete with rifling. This accuracy allowed for guerrilla combatants to accurately motherfuck British officers and soldiers alike from a distance, making rifled weapons popular in America since the beginning. This is also an important advantage because while we think that Washington was a massively impressive and fallible general of the United States military, he was actually getting his ass pounded more than a bisexual man at a swingers club. His troops weren't well-trained, there weren't a lot of them, they were poorly supplied, and they didn't have the money or time to dedicate to making a better fighting force. 
So he leaned really heavily on people who were good shots and could hide with no qualms about killing people that couldn't see them. And in 1776, to ensure that they could gather enough arms, Washington established Springfield Armory to collect, keep, maintain, distribute, and help manufacture weapons for the war effort. Now, after the war ended and we won our independence, it'll be the first time you see a particular pattern. So, here we are, in the war, with a new nation. Excellent news. But, we're broke as fuck and have a lot of soldiers to pay. But, lucky for us, we can give them some of the land that's basically just as good as our worthless shithole money. But, oh, fuck, they know they can overthrow the crown of Britain and are fresh from fighting a war for us, and they still have all the guns. We're, we're fucked. But, see, America has this funny little habit of making a shitload of guns and weapons and military hardware, and then distributing it to our soldiers to fight, and then realizing America has literally no way to take any of it back. So, the government basically just let everyone keep their rifles. Their combat-grade rifles. Now, while this isn't like the modern difference between rifles a person can own and rifles the government lets you use so you can afford college or rent, it's pretty similar. I wore muskets where high-powered, long-range tubes of big, thick energy and death, especially compared to hunting rifles at the time. And speaking of hunting rifles, the U.S. just gave their snipers a ton of experience using them to kill important people. Luckily, though, as far as we know today, is always at least kind of the plan to let people have their own guns. And this culminated in the ratification of the Second Amendment in 1791, a full eight years after the war ended and a full 15 after signing the Fuck Off Britain papers. Now, the Second Amendment reads, A well-regulated militia being necessary, the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, at the time, when I just brought up, it's not like the government had the power to not give the people this right. However, is the government saying, just fucking send me if I'm ever a prick to the people just armed, a clear sign, in my opinion, of a lot of trust and genuine faith. However, there is also a lot of practicality. I mean, the government couldn't pay its fucking soldiers. So, of course, it would make sense that Brent never returned like it did 21 years later, or another nation started getting horny for American land, they need to quickly mobilize a fighting force to defend the nation without paying out the ass and wasting precious time buying or making guns and training an army. It's a lot easier to say, get your guns, than it is to say, go buy some guns, or here's our gun loan program. And then in 1810 and 1816, America made a deal with two men to start manufacturing their weapons. First was Derringer, who created muskets and pistols for the U.S. military, right in time for the War of 1812. And he would go on to invent the Derringer pistol in 1825 and was mass-produced in 1852. But, you know, of course he fucked up copyright law, so the double R Derringer was soon being manufactured by other companies. And if you don't know what a Derringer is, it's a stubby little pistol that looks like a micropenis that was used by assassins and it's self-protection because it was easy to hide in your pants or your skirt. You know, like a micropenis. And the second guy was Remington. While initially he primarily made barrels and only took a few actual guns for the military, by 1841 his company Remington Arms was producing rifles to sell to the U.S. And if you aren't familiar with Remington's, they're one of the 
biggest names in U.S. gun manufacturing alongside Browning, Smith & Wesson, Mossberg, and Colt. Uh, speaking of Colt, Samuel Colt entered the gun-making game swinging. He patented his design for the revolver handgun in 1836, his company being created in the same year. Colt is the company that created the M16 and M4 rifles based on the design of the AR-15 created by Eugene Stoner in 1956. Colt also created the nuts-quaking masculine urge to kill satisfying tagline, God created man, Sam Colt made them equal. Which is so fucking badass, by the way. And kind of unfortunately for Colt, the patent on his revolver expired in the mid-1850s, which conveniently allowed the U.S. government to buy and manufacture revolvers at a much higher rate. And why would the United States of America, who historically had absolutely zero problems in the mid-1850s, be buying so many guns, you ask? Well, because simply put, listener, America was about to metaphorically and literally grab itself by the jaw and asshole and pull, you know, otherwise known as the Civil War. Now, while officially the Civil War started in 1861, both sides of the war had been arming up for a while, and not just in the abolitionist John Brown sense either, of getting guns together and raiding armories to arm slaves to free themselves. The rumblings of the Confederacy were already getting weapons together, and so was the Union. By the time the war started in April of 1861, it wasn't really a surprise to anyone. But this war was different from previous American wars in a few ways. First, if we remember back to the progression of firearms technology, some guns were starting to be manufactured with cartridges and firing pins, which made them easier to fire. Guns were also getting more powerful. Secondly, the Industrial Revolution was a thing, meaning that the rate they were making guns wasn't measured in weeks anymore. It was measured in hours. On top of this, battlefield tactics and strategy of warfare hadn't really been updated in America for a while because, largely, America had been smacking around Native Americans like how you throw grandma in the river. Easier than it should have been. Then combined this with the invention of the motherfucking Gatling gun in the same year the war started, you'll quickly realize why we still haven't gotten over this. And to give yourself an example, place yourself in the position of a Union soldier. And also, if you're immediately disappointed and say Confederate, we need to talk after class. But anyways, you've just been drafted and trained, and you got your uniform and stuff. Now, let's say you're in the fourth rank of your city's militia, a group of about 60 dudes, and there's 30 in front of you. You're holding a rifle, a stamp with a seal of approval like yesterday, and you're feeling pretty confident you're going to bash some redneck skulls in. Well, you arrive to battle and realize, huh, wow, we're marching pretty close, aren't we? And as you're looking across the field at the face of a Confederate soldier about half your age on the front line looking scared shitless, everything turns white with gun smoke, and you can't hear as everyone bucks a shot off at the same time. And when the smoke clears, you're in the first rank now because 30 fucking people just died and less time than it takes your grandma to hit the fucking water. Or if you're unlucky, you're on the ground bleeding out because they had one more rank in their formation than you. Basically what I'm saying is that all of these factors combined mean that the war was now more bloody, more destructive, more brutal, and much easier to fund than ever before. This doesn't help by the fact that both sides of the war bought thousands upon thousands of guns consistently from any manufacturer that would work with them. So much so that after the Civil War ended, the United States had a bigger surplus than they had ever had before. So remember, kids, what does the U.S. do when it has a surplus of very powerful military-grade firearms? Say with me. That's right. They sell them to whoever the fuck. Because of the surplus, guns weren't nearly as expensive as they are today, 
and even poorer families could afford the same model of gun, but not two years ago was ripping a 19-year-old's collarbone out through its asshole to bring with them to the wild frontier of the Midwest and beyond. And on top of that, gun companies realized that the government wasn't buying. They didn't have a way to keep their profit margins high. So they did what all companies do to sell to Americans. Shamed them. The marketing around guns turned them not only being necessary out there in the wild, which makes sense given the number of crazy people and animals out there and also the rightfully pissed Native Americans, but also made guns manly, and that was considered not only masculine, but downright fatherly and sexy to not only have a gun, but know how to use it and to teach your sons how to use it to protect your family. You know, like protecting your family from the big bad being KFC employee. Then you add into the mix the Mississippi to Seaburn approach of a union for fighting the South and basically dump a fuck ton of guns in their laps and then also free a group of people that many Southerners believe were subhuman tools until yesterday and you have even more problems. Very quickly in the South, anti-black mobs formed wielding guns. So to protect them, pro-black mobs formed with guns. Which again, these guns were used to empty out a grown man's abdomen not too long ago, and now a bunch of angry, government-hating, racially-charged people have them and are trying to use them on equally angry and government-hating people. Which, like, I get it, hindsight's twenty twenty, but fucking seriously? No one saw a problem with this? No one took a step back and thought, hmm... Maybe we should help the South rebuild, or, barring that, maybe we shouldn't be cool with armed mobs of angry Southerners being told by gun companies to use their guns or watch their families get their asses blown out. Anyways, in my opinion, this is where America's relationship with guns really started to spiral downhill. Into the early 1900s, a lot of places in the U.S. really started to crack down on guns being out in the open in public. Now, at first, you might be confused by that, but if you know a lot of wildlife history, this actually isn't that surprising. Gun control is just about as old as the Wild West itself, with many cities and towns outright banning firearms being out in the open within city limits. So it's not really surprising to me that places back east would start doing this, and in fact, I would have expected the West to lag behind. I, but to be fair, it's a lot easier to keep order in small towns when you're the only one with a gun, so I guess it kind of makes some sense. Anyways, jumping forward to 1918, and the first U.S. submachine gun was invented. Created too late to be used in World War One, the Thompson was kind of left in a weird space because the guy who invented it, Brigadier General Thomas T. Johnson, the most hung name by the way, had taken some time to make sure that the gun would sell well and invested quite a bit in development. And it flopped worse than the fucking Jungle Cruise movie. So he did what American businesses do. Sold them to whoever the fuck. So it fell in the hands pretty quickly of the U.S. Marine Corps, used during the Banana Wars in Nicaragua and Honduras, which is as fuck nuts of a conflict as it sounds. Chinese warlords, international peacekeeper organizations, the Irish Republican Army in small numbers, and the motherfucking United States Postal Service. USPS took package theft very seriously back in the day. If you tried to rob a mail carrier in the early 1920s, there's a non-zero chance he would pull a fucking trench broom from his hip and turn you and all 35 innocent bystanders into a bag of juice. And that's only half a joke. Surprisingly, at the time, mail theft was very common and pretty deadly, so the internal investigative and protection arm of the USPS bought and used submachine guns. Now, at the start of Prohibition, the Thompson got a new association of being a gun used by both cops and by criminals. And the reason was simple. It becomes steadily cheaper to not manufacture and use, but it's also being marketed to police departments to deal with crowds of those pesky jaywalkers and not white people. 
which again is barely a joke. No, the real reason was because of organized crime caused by prohibition of drugs, alcohol, and prostitutes, and police needed something to fight back effectively. Problem was that if the gun is plentiful, the criminals will get it too, especially if cops sell them the guns or someone else buys them from Thompson. Then 1928, the federal government bought the distribution rights and somehow accidentally on purpose gave some to China again and then to the FBI after the Kansas City Massacre. Which is a huge shooting, by the way. The next few big things in gun history is gun law. So first we have the National Firearms Act of 1934 to address the use of Thompsons and other high-powered weapons in crime. According to the ATF, it imposed criminal, regulatory, and tax requirements on weapons favored by gangsters, like machine guns, silencers, and sawed-off shotguns. Which basically means that while it wasn't exactly illegal to have these weapons, there were new requirements to own them, and the government wanted to cut the sales, and you also might get in trouble if you shot someone with them, which, if you know American law, this is about as American as it gets. I basically the law just imposes a tax on gun production and distribution for specifically those kinds of guns and also requires them to be on a list with the Treasury Department. So, you know, not exactly addressing the problem, just making a pain in the ass to do crime. The next big piece of gun law comes into being in 1968 on the tale of, honestly, probably the safest time in history to be really involved in social issues. You know, it was right after JFK, MLK, Malcolm X, and Robert F. Kennedy were all assassinated. So, you know, both politicians and citizens really want something to be done. So, something was done. And drumroll, please. I'm not putting in a drumroll. The Gun Control Act of 1968. A law panned as being as effective for keeping guns out of the wrong hands as abstinence is at keeping jizz out of your teenagers. So, what did it do? The law created tighter control on interstate and foreign transportation and trading of guns, which included licensing the sell import tax and checks, and preventing sales and transport to quote-unquote restricted persons. So it's basically the legal equivalent of your wife asking you to pay more attention to your kids so you cup a wet part in your hand and put in their oatmeal. I mean, are you doing something? Yeah. Addressing the problem? No. And seriously, no one liked it. I mean, people in favor of harsher gun laws were upset because it did literally nothing to address the issue, while people who didn't like gun laws were upset because it put regulations on guns. So, you know, really reaching across the aisle to flick each other in the sack there. Then in 1977, at an NRA rally, you know, back when the NRA did anything but hit the kill more children please button, gun control oppositionists seized NRA headquarters and caused a multi-day siege because the NRA were considering maybe, maybe supporting some gun laws. But if you ask me, I think they literally just switched clothes and have never left since. And uh, this was followed pretty quickly by the gun show loophole introduced in 1985 and 86. If you're unfamiliar, this loophole is that since Jesus is afraid of guns, he can't watch you have sex while a gun show, so premarital sex there doesn't count. What it actually means is that while federally recognized shops and companies are required to do a background check for gun sales, you don't have to for individual sales. Which means that if you wanted to sell assault weapons to dangerously unstable men in their 40s, aka militiamen, you just have to be able to buy them yourself and then go to a gun show where the feds can't tread. In 1993, the Brady Bill passed, which doesn't close the loophole. Instead, it just specifies that gun shops, certified dealers, and manufacturers need to see ID and also run a background check to sell you guns. Which, again, feels like a wet part of my oatmeal. 
However, the very next year, the U.S. passed an assault weapon ban, which was looking to close that very dangerous loophole. And, you know, especially with an uptick in crime violence during the 90s, it would really help to have some hard facts and figures to help us find out how best to deal with the issue. Well, the government took care of that, too, by banning the CDC from doing research in gun violence and fatalities in 1996. Yes, I love my country. Okay, <clears throat> now to demonstrate where the priorities are, uh, I'm going to take you on a little bit of a timeline adventure. Um, the assault weapon ban ended in 2004 because it lapsed out of date, meaning they didn't even vote on it. The CDC ban ended in 20-fucking-19. Let's do some quick math. The CDC wasn't allowed to research gun violence for 23 fucking years and assault weapons. Remember, the guns generally used by militaries across the world couldn't be bought and sold for only a decade. I am 23 years old. A full-ass adult developed in the same amount of time the CDC had to just twiddle its ass hair and wonder why so many people were getting fucking domed in the streets. Two things did happen in the early 2000s that I'm actually generally pretty okay with. So in 2005, the government passed the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, which protects gun manufacturers and dealers from legal consequences caused by illegally purchased weapons of theirs. Which, I mean, to me, does just make sense. I mean, yeah, sure, is a weapon, and we need to be careful who has it. But we also commonly and commercially sell fireworks, bleach, kitchen knives, cars, and internet access. And sure, you can mangle your hand. And sure, you can mangle your hand, go blind, stab your friend Paul for liking Machine Gun Kelly, run your car into a family, then off a bridge, and watch hentai online until your dick turns green and falls off. We accept that these things aren't the company's fault. In the same way that Remington creates the object you use to end the career of a KFC manager, Verizon gave you the means to watch increasing more depraved animated pornography until you became a husk of a man. But neither one necessarily intended that. Remington wanted to use that gun to paint the forest with a deer or your house with a burglar, and Verizon, like all ISPs, wanted to bend you over table and spank you until you gave them your search history. Companies aren't responsible for how you use the stuff you buy from them, as long as they're designed to be used as intended safely. So, if you don't use it how it's intended, you gotta accept the risk that you get hurt. Or, if someone else uses it irresponsibly, as long as the company wasn't egging them on or fucking designed the thing so bad they plastered your family at the bottom of the river, that's their fault, not the company's. Not to say I really like corporations, of course, I would just rather not have my ISP send USPS gunmen to my house every time I looked up tall, big, titty, goth, mommy, GFE, dirty talk, pegging, please hold me, because they don't want to risk me suing them for ruining my life. The other is that in 2008, the Supreme Court determined the interpretation of the Second Amendment we're going to go with until we get a new Supreme Court, which is going to be a while. You know, the virgin blood. Uh, so they came to the agreement that the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms isn't a collective right rather an individual. What this means isn't that your local government keeps your guns for you and you go get them when needed, or that you'll be conscripted to serve in a militia. Rather, you can own your own gun and use it, and that's a foundational right of Americans. And now, I'm okay with this for two reasons. One, because it's an actual answer. As much as I personally don't like it, and a lot of people also don't like it, the Supreme Court is literally the ultimate voice on the American legal code. So, we now know that 100% for sure, with complete certainty, we can own guns. Also, I'm not going to talk about the other thing they decided a while ago. 
that's fucked up. Secondly, because if you're from a small town and you're a bit more liberal than anyone else, do you want your local government to have your gun? Do you want the town mayor that got voted in because he said he was going to deport the illegal immigrants living in your town, 2,000 people, with exactly one illegal immigrant, who's a white dude from Canada, living in it, to have your rifle in the armory in town hall? Do you want the 1.5 cops that have never had to deal anything worse than a Karen having the keys to the entire fucking armory? I certainly don't. And places that are very blue, and if you're red and somehow still listening to this, I'm sure you feel similarly. You own a gun because you want to have it. It doesn't work if it's in your town hall or an armory building somewhere waiting for the day the Russians, the Chinese, the Confederates are somehow still around the fascists or the furries come to kill us all. Now the last thing I want to address in the history section is the pattern we've touched on in America's too abusive for comfort but not abusive enough to tell her she's too good for in relationship with guns. Since probably the end of the Civil War, but certainly since the 60s, the American narrative for guns has been one of fear, violence, self-protection, and dissatisfaction. Americans buy massive numbers of guns during times of upheaval. Anticipating Y2K, the string of cults and serial killers in the 70s and 80s, after 9-11, in 2008 and 2009 during the recession, in 2016 when Trump Me Daddy was elected, and in 2020 during the pandemic. At all these times, periods of fear and upheaval have been accented with spikes in gun sales. And this is really what I wanted to dig at and impress to you. I used to think that America's relationship with guns was as a tool, that we saw the gun as a symbol of liberation and salvation, so when someone uses one, it is them begging for or protecting liberty and or salvation from their own perspective. But looking at the history and pattern of gun sales, that's not true at all. Guns are a symbol of our fear and desire for violence, our animalistic need to protect ourselves, and our cultural rage at being dissatisfied. When combined, whenever an American feels threatened, memes aside, many think of a gun. Whether it's, does he have a gun? I wish I had a gun. Where's my gun? Or, I hope no one pulls a gun. A lot of us recognize them as dangerous, but a kind of danger that is at the same time both comforting and terrifying. Anyways, I'll get back to these thoughts at the end. Until then, let's talk about the current time. So, just like the last episode, the place we're going to start when discussing guns is some numbers. Now, these numbers are going to be very sad and depressing, so first we're all going to take a look at your out-of-the-box, bog-standard gun owner. This is based entirely off of averages, but keep in mind that this is by most, and not an amalgamation of gun owner stats in the U.S. So, while I'm describing this, I want you to picture the person that comes to mind and email me about it, because I personally was really not surprised when I did it. Okay, here we go. So, they are a white, married man that lives in the South and has children. He is between 50 and 64 years old, living in the burbs with either some college or degree. They either vote red or vote red-leaning independent, and mostly use their gun for protection and hunting. They believe stricter gun law makes it harder to protect their families, and protecting these rights are a high priority because gun laws give the government more power and more rights to take them from citizens, a la 1984. They believe owning a gun makes them safer and enjoy having it. They are in favor of background checks, but not high-capacity magazine or assault weapon bans. I know the son of a bitch. The son of a bitch is easily a quarter of every dude in the town I live in. If my uncle moved into town in 10 years, because he decided he had enough of having more land than I will ever rent in my entire life, he'd be that motherfucker. I mean, really, do we expect anything different? 
And when people imagine a gun nut in America, the three things you think of almost immediately are Idahoan militiamen living in the woods, early 20-something firing semi-autos into targets, suspiciously shaped like the history teacher from high school they blame for everything wrong in their life, and a middle-aged man standing on his porch shouting, get off my lawn, in a southern accent while kids with belt marks hide behind him. Okay, now for the actual stats around guns. So, let's begin with how much money is in the gun industry and how many guns are floating around. Uh, roughly at this moment, the legal gun trade accounts for just about $70 billion and employs over 375,000 people on the manufacturing side. Now, for comparison, 12 years before this, the gun trade accounted for $19 billion and 166,000 employees, which is fucking bonkers. I mean, that's more growth in my dick watching food and porn with more tags than the DMV. And also, the rate at which we own guns is wild. Per capita, we have 120.5 guns per 100 people in the U.S. Well, sure, that sounds like a lot. I'm going to do some math for you real quick to really drive the point home. Right now, the U.S. population is 329.5 million people. So that means, as far as the government knows, there are 396,445,000 guns in the U.S. Then, we do a bit more math, and assuming every person owning a gun reported being a gun owner, then 32% of Americans own guns, which means 105,440,000 people own, on average, three guns with a few extra left over. And while for us Americans, this doesn't seem like too much, we own enough guns to absolutely waffle stomp most other nations counted. And I know what you're thinking. Surely, we aren't the top of the chart, right? Again, you're wrong. Like, always. Just let the big bad podcast man tell you what to believe and gaslight you into using this as your only source for the next 200 internet arguments. But, yes, we do top the chart. Second place is Falkland Islands, not fucking Falkland, with 62.1 guns per 100 people. About half our number of guns and about 3,000 people. And third place is motherfucking Yemen at 52.8 guns per 100 people. This, by the way, is why no country would ever invade the U.S. by land, and there's actual military documentation from U.S. strategists that use militaries to basically say, if I had to invade the U.S., I'd be looping on my butthole and getting the noose ready before my CO even finished the sentence. We have so many fucking guns, so many people, so many different environments. Our infrastructure is such a piece of shit on a good day. But, anyways, we're going to move on to the actual current issues with guns. Beginning with the one we've already talked about in the history section. That being the interpretation of the Second Amendment. Which... Give me flashbacks to last episode when STDs kept coming up. Like that stubborn wart you have and should get tested. Just to insert my soapbox early, I hate that we're still fighting over what the Founding Fathers meant with this amendment. Not just because the Supreme Court already put the words in their mouths for us, but because if you look at the actual historical context, things like the National Guard don't count. But neither does carte blanche to wield whatever at whoever you want. The issue with the interpretation is because of the disconnect between normal English and legalese. Again, here's what it literally says. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So, the amendment starts with a kind of loaded term for modern audience. Because what does well-regulated mean? 
gun control, mandatory military service, training, a desire to plunge a bullet into a Native American because they very reasonably aren't happy about how they're being treated. Now, we'll skim over the second part, but I think it's also important to note because it recontextualizes everything. Now, security and safety aren't the same. National and state security means protecting the government and the identity of the state. That for most people, the concepts of keep and bear are practically the same. But this also isn't true. Keep would be to have them yourself, while bear would be to produce the weapon against an enemy. So the Second Amendment protects your right to not only use your rifle, but to use it on people in defense. But in defense of what? Well, I think in this case, national security and identity. It means that if you happen to own a M240B machine gun with a grenade launcher, bayonet attachment, and explosive rounds dipped in arsenic, the U.S. technically couldn't punish you if you're going to use it for U.S. troops fighting Russians in Florida. And except for maybe the arsenic, I think that's an actual war crime. Then we'll both arms and infringed. Now, for most people, arms means guns, which I think is accurate, but many have pointed out that this also means weapons. But, you know, given the wider context of the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, my assumption is that it means weapons that could aid in national security. Which I think might have just made the entire NRA pop a boner for the first time since the 90s. But I think, unfortunately, for those old man boners, infringed doesn't mean the slow creep of change. Rather, I think it's more the legal sense, which that definition is to psych on a contract. Basically, the Constitution isn't saying no gun laws ever. It's saying you can't take the right to pick up guns away. And again, the whole amendment is a fucking mess and a half to translate to modern sensibilities. But as much as I loathe the Supreme Court's current choices, they did say that this is an individual right. They're literally the only voice that matters legally. Again, as much as it sucks for the modern context. I wrote this way before I scripted. <laughs> I was also wrong. I wrote this way before I recorded it. I knew that they were going to say some dumb shit. I didn't know how dumb it was going to be. I'm sorry. Okay. Now, the second massive gun issue in the United States is, of course, gun violence and mass shootings. Now, unfortunately, getting a hold of evergreen data about mass shootings is almost impossible because they keep getting worse. I can say for certain that the mass shooting rate has been sitting around 20 a year. And there doesn't seem to be a single reason why or a single fix-all band-aid solution that the U.S. loves to use. All we have are warning signs, such as, one, owning a gun or living in a gun owning household, like 42% of Americans. Two, someone who had prior warning signs or behaviors that indicate a desire to commit mass violence. And three, has committed acts of domestic violence or has been involved in domestic violence, which has an incidence rate, sometimes up to the entire population of the U.S. You know, which is not a ton to go off of. However, there are some stats about the crime itself. First, where they happen. About 70% have involved the shooter's home, while 39% involve the public. Meaning that 9% of all shootings start at home and spill into public places. Also, 33% of mass shooters at the time of the shootings weren't allowed to even own a firearm, and 56% of them showed warning signs. Now also, weapons with high rates of fire and high magazine capacities are much more likely to use in public, being 76% of all public shootings. It isn't necessarily the quote-unquote assault-style weapons that are the bad guys, since 81% of all shootings include a handgun. And regardless, these people get their hands on something they shouldn't have had and use it for violence. 
which isn't okay that we allow by any stretch of the imagination. For more general gun violence, there are approximately 45,222 gun deaths a year. Of these, 43% are homicide. Also, trigger warning real quick. 53% uh, are suicide. And the rest are things like police accidents and unknown causes where we found bullets in the corpse. Which I think that should be easier to categorize and just being called unknown cases. And also, before we continue, I want to tell everyone listening something important. Because I mentioned suicide, I want to take a moment to remind everyone who's struggling with suicidal thoughts that you're still needed and wanted. Whatever you're going through it isn't going to last as long as you will. And if you must, keep living out of spite. Show those bastards you're stronger than them by outliving them. I've been where you are, and even if no one has said it to you, I want you to stick around. Because you're important to me. Suicide hotline number will be posted in the episode description. Okay. So back to the scheduled broadcast. Uh, so gun violence is so prevalent in the U.S. that it accounts for 79% of all homicides and half of all suicides in the U.S. Also, that figure of 45,000 deaths a year from guns is higher than traffic accidents, breast or prostate cancer, or Parkinson's disease. So if you're playing the lottery of how you'll die as an American, you're more likely to die with a bull in your body than with a car or tumor in your body. But here's the other thing about these stats. While they're scary and something we need to be addressing as a society, they are also a little bit deceptive. Because most homicides and suicides are not elaborate and well-thought-out events. Well, yes, that does happen. Most of them are spur of the moment in a moment of vulnerability and despair or a moment of unbridled anger. Most homicide investigations aren't multi-year processes with the brightest minds. Rather, it's pulling up to a house after domestic disturbance goes wrong with a corpse in the yard and either a mortified and traumatized victim that shot their abuser or an abuser screaming at the cops that they quote-unquote deserved it. And only somewhere between the massive range of 3 to 42% of suicide victims leave a note, i.e. plan it out beforehand. And a lot of people who have reconsidered it have reconsidered it while writing their note. What's deceptive isn't that the stats are lying to you. What's deceptive is that we think about these life-altering events as planned and foreseeable when they usually aren't. So why guns? Well, this can be answered in our history section. Guns have been finely honed since the 10th century to paint walls and trees with blood. They see more battlefields than I say probably half of all the weapons ever imagined. Guns nowadays are quick, devastating, and accurate. If you want a quick death for either yourself or the person you're mad at, it makes sense to me why they're used so often, even ignoring cultural context. Now for the big boy of the discussion. Gun control. The boogeyman that Tucker Carlson and Carolyn Meadows keep their night's nightlight on for. Now while I could think the stats for people that don't own guns are all Americans overall, I don't think that's particularly useful to discuss gun control. I think it's far more valuable to ask the opinions of people who have experience with something to help guide regulation. Like how I think Volvo managers should be the ones leading the charge on how to handle reproductive rights since they're the ones with the human factor in their lower abdomen. So from a poll done of gun owners, there's a few things to cover. First, the idea of having background checks to be able to own guns. Now, 83% of gun owners are in favor while 14% aren't, and 3%, I guess, were too busy using a 5.56 around his butt plug to give an answer. So, now, interestingly, only 79% of gun, owner, gun owners are in favor of the sellers doing the background checks, 
while 19% aren't in favor and 1% of the people pulled bull out of their butt to answer. Pro prohibition of abusers and stalkers that have guns, 2,000 people who escalate to violence a lot, 73% are in favor and 15% are against. Which, fuck have I know why? 76% uh, are in favor of a permit to conceal carry, while 21% are against it. And I am so relieved for that number of people against this are higher than the amount are chill with wife beaters and window jerkers being able to pack heat. And finally, 82% of those asked believe that the Second Amendment goes hand-in-hand hand with stopping criminals from having guns, while 11% disagree. Now, I don't entirely know what this means or if they explained it to participants, but it makes sense why so many people believe this. You believe the Second Amendment works as intended, gun laws and the Second Amendment can get along if they smell each other through the door first, or that criminals can't commit crimes, their memories of junior high are currently splattered against your wall. And this poll shows something really interesting that I think we forget a lot due to the news being how it is now. That most people, when you ask them sincere questions, aren't being a pedantic, patronizing dickhead to them, are actually really civil and reasonable. Most of the time on the left, the idea of a gun owner is a rebel yelling, violent, crazy redneck whose rate of drinking beer and shouting racial slurs are neck and neck. But the reality is that gun control isn't actually entirely controversial in the gun owner community, and that more of the debate is really the scope of who does what and why. And that's the biggest current issue with gun control. This is so emotionally charged, and no one gives a fuck until a group of toddlers are gunned down. So politicians can grandstand about protecting us of the Constitution or some shit, and then the NRA can give them $10 million each, and they can shrug and say, well, NRA says no, we tried our best. We never discuss guns when there isn't a crisis. We never ask why the NRA just says no to every solution that doesn't involve everyone packing heat. Why everyone packing heat hasn't happened yet. But when you actually talk to longtime gun owners like I have, you find out that most of them are embarrassed and upset being lumped in with the dumbasses on TV or the let their kids chew on a revolver. They also want something done. We're going to go over the opinions before I continue to soapbox. But I'll see you soon. So, much like the last episode, while I really wanted to sit here and tell you what the general liberal and conservative party line viewpoints on this are, I'm very quickly realizing that I will not only waste your time, but more importantly, my very shallow pool of energy. So, instead, we're going to go over five of the 15 major talking points with gun control. So that's really the big hot-button issue, and the amount of times I'll be repeating myself is bonkers. And the first piece of evidence we have is the Second Amendment again. Now, actually, the opinions here are a little bit different than what the Supreme Court ruled on. While that was about if you need to be part of a militia, or if you just be strapped to defend your family from fast food workers, these opinions are more on gun laws in general. It comes down to this. Does the Second Amendment make gun laws even legal to pass? Which, if you're listening and just dramatically dropped a full cup of coffee, yes, it's that serious. One side of the argument says... And no shit, gun laws are legal to pass for the same reason that I, for example, cannot threaten the life of Mike Pence, even when I really want to. Especially if they think I'm actually capable of Vlad Dracooling him with a 10-foot tall novelty dildo, I, which I definitely don't have, and definitely don't have the means to do it. Now the other side of the argument offers up that gun ownership is not only protected by the Second Amendment, but to introduce further gun law would do nothing but stop people from having the guns they need, 
to make sure the government can't 1984 us. That basically, we need to have people in this country have the guns required to protect our own liberties, and that Uncle Sam shouldn't tell us what not to own. I mean, here's the problem. I see both sides of this. Well, yes, on the side that we need gun laws, because some people really just shouldn't have a gun, I also think that's important for the government to fear us. Because if the government fears us, it's harder for them to openly 1984 us. Let them do that subliminally, like the ads on porn sites subliminally making you gay. I'm kidding, by the way, that doesn't happen. The second talking point we have is as a crime deterrent. Sorry, I'm, I'm a little distracted by my own joke. Okay. <laughs> uh, the, the side in favor of gun control argues that guns don't do a whole lot to stop crime. And if someone's angry enough to turn your face inside out using the sidewalk, don't really care if you're packing heat. Also, that most of the time, when faced with someone angry and violent, or otherwise doing something illegal and harmful to other people, your gun isn't necessarily somewhere easily reached, or it's something you can immediately pull out and use. Now, the other side argues a much simpler argument that I'm going to just, real quick for you, strip away all the morality bullshit from. Guns are good crime deterrents because most people don't get their brains blasted across the chicken nuggets when they're trying to get their wife moist by starting a fight with a 17-year-old Applebee's waiter. Which is basically to say that if everyone's packing heat, everyone suddenly gets very fucking polite. Now, that's the best way to stop crime before it happens, is to make whoever is going to commit it afraid of retaliation. And we'll cite examples, both historically and statistically, of this being true. And, again, I gotta say, they both make some good points. But also, if you've ever been in public before, go touch grass, by the way, you know that neither of these are actually how people act. Some people are real calm in a fight and can pull their gun, while other hotheads will forget everyone else is packing heat. And not even mugging or robbery is necessarily too close to draw your gun. And some people are desperate or emotional enough to not care that you have an RPG-7 surgically attached to your hands. The third is more about bands in general. So, on the pro-ban side of things, the primary reasoning is that if we let people have high-capacity guns, it isn't because they need to gun down swarms of deer charging their cabins and killing their dog. It's because they're shit-shot with a lot of people on their hit list. But because of the proportion of mass shooters using high-capacity weapons and how favored they are by a number of gangs and other mass killers, it's better to ban these things than risk it. On the other side, the argument is that guns aren't just used to kill people, the high-powered weapons are used for hunting, and high-capacity weapons are used for fun and sport. Because sure, 30 rounds a second is overkill in almost any actual situation, but have you ever fired a gun? It feels like the pure power of Shiva giving you a reach-around while telling your monkey brain every single repressed dirty ape secret you can imagine. So we can't deny that some of these exist and are purchasable by civilians because about half of all gun owners would cream their pants off to get to watch it fire. And while I respect the honesty, there really has to be a better option than just let everyone have a gun that can turn a shopping mall into a graveyard. It'll be fine. So now we're on to self-defense. And this is the first major time we're going to have some really solid and relevant numbers that kind of speak for themselves. On one side, guns are really, really bad at self-defense. Only 0.79% of reported violent crimes where the victim had a gun ended well for them and also earning the crown as the least used response to violence. And also, 0.12% of reported property crimes use the gun for self-protection. 
But on the other side, using the same stats multiplied out, guns are used for self-protection 2.5 million times a year. And hey, sometimes it even works. Also, notably, 79% of male gun owners and 80% of female gun owners feel notably safer with it on them. Also, also, cops can't be there all the time to protect you, and given some recent-ish events, they might not even show up if it's too bad. And this is an important lesson in statistics. Sure, only 0.91% of all crimes have a gun involved on the victim's side actually working out, but 2.5 million times some douche looper got to look down the barrel while trying to shove a TV or someone's family out the window. And also, there is some value in people feeling safe, even if they aren't actually more safe. So, like, yeah, I think the gun guys have it on this one. Okay, finally, we have good old Daddy Sam and his belt, also known as government intervention. On the pro-gun control side, what is very pointedly noted is that the cost of gun violence is fucking astronomical. We're talking $29.7 billion every nine years in just hospital bills. Which, sure, isn't much to the United States government considering our military gets $766 billion, but fuck, man, this isn't just on daddy's dime. And then you add in legal fees, investigation, funeral expenses, foster care. Yeah, we're getting darker than shit. Lost earnings and closed businesses, and then 10,000 other bills that happen when a national tragedy occurs. And the amount of money it costs is staggering. Oh, and also the murder rate drops down, drives down property value. Which, honestly, on some level, to a broke 23-year-old living in 2023, it sounds like we need to kill more people. Anyways, the other side of the argument makes the point that, hey, we have the Second Amendment, not because guns are fun, because if we need to, we can kill the president. And, yeah, that's why it's there, but holy fuck, that's also terrifying. There's a big problem with this, though, and it's that the U.S. citizen wouldn't stand a chance against the U.S. military. Especially after being in the Middle East almost long enough for Team Mom in the 80s to have grandkids she can drive to junior high. The technologies the government has to kill people has way surpassed anything a civilian can even afford to get their greasy, slimy toes on. So, again, I respect the spirit, but for fuck's sake, maybe the NRA and Alex Jones said some bullshit and were wrong. We are going to move on to some of the solutions proposed for America's long-term love affair with guns and gun violence. And, again, let me... Alright. And... And we've been over this before. Okay, so the argument to stop gun violence can be described in a few camps. First, we have no guns allowed, which is basically a solution that says, Hey, why the fuck do we even let you guys have these in the first place? Then we have the ban hammer, which says we need to restrict either the ownership of all guns or certain ones in particular. And there's the camp I'll completely show my bias on by calling why are we putting band-aids on bullet wounds where the core premise isn't gun bad or gun good, but gun why. The next is more oil will fix this oil spill, where the solution can be pared down to more guns. And finally we have the, this is good actually, that denies that there's even a problem at all. Alright, now, let's be very unfair and make some straw men, shall we? So, the no guns allowed may sound like a fair option at first. Especially if you're on the liberal side. The fewer guns, the less gun violence we have, right? But the problems, especially in America, pop up like cryptocurrencies and Starbucks. First, how are you going to do that? Even ignoring that not every person in America necessarily has the ability to turn their guns, 
because they can't get off the fucking mountain more than one time a year when the thaw passes. Why would about a third of Americans do that? If you know gun owners, they're well aware that there is a nightmare to invade because of them, and you want them to peacefully be cool with some doing a tie come to collect their weapons. Fuck off. Also, as we see in other industries like sex, work, and drugs, making it illegal doesn't exactly make it impossible to obtain. Especially because as many fancy bells and whistles we put on guns nowadays, they are not that hard to make. Especially when you want to sell them, and don't give a single honey badger a fuck about safety. Beyond these problems, what are you going to do when the government has them? How is the government going to afford this? And you add on to that, taking away guns means that 90% of gun owners and maybe 40 to 50% of other people are going to go fucking bonkers and think it's revolution time. Me included, by the way. Now, the one I have less of an issue with is the Banhammer. While it does have some of the same problems, since people still want to own guns, it, it does make sense. And especially if it's shit that you wouldn't trust people to use responsibly, like a fucking rotary gun. No one needs a weapon, usually mounted on helicopters and jet fighters. Banning that is a no-shit thing to do. Where you get into a problem is banning specific things, like bump stocks and bayonets, especially because these things are kind of easy to make. Bump stocks can be replicated by a rubber band around the trigger, and a bayonet can be replicated by duct-taping a knife to the barrel. You could say the same about lob modifications. Someone that wants a sawed-off shotgun are going to make it and use it. If they're not a criminal, they'll probably just, like... If they're not a criminal, they're probably, like... I don't know, say a lot homoerotic things about it to other gun owners. I, whatever gun people do when they meet up, besides make out. And if they're a criminal, they're gonna turn someone to jello. I mean, either way, Daddy Sam won't know about it unless it's attached to another crime or they're dumb enough to post it on Facebook. Now, the third, more oil will fix this oil spill, is honestly one of my favorites, and it's because it's dumb. And it's one that you'll see all over the place after a mass tragedy. Basically, what if instead of letting people get shot... We shoot the people that shoot people. Now, granted, while I just talked shit, I understand the reflex. Normal people will be a lot more polite in school if Mr. Johnson in the front of the room has a Smith & Wesson, I'll fuck your mom and you'll thank me for it, hanging from his waist. But that's the thing. That's normal people. Guess who isn't normal? Mass shooters. You don't go from an accounting job and two and a half children in the morning to filling cemeteries and then back again. Crazy people can't be reasoned with. While sure, you could say that people can fight back if they're armed, remember the stats from earlier. Very few people actually draw and fire. If everyone's packing, we have the bystander effect coming into play, which we already do a lot of the time. And in second place for unreasonable are people overcome by emotion, so when an argument gets heated and someone pulls a gun. Saying more guns would fix that is like seeing a gas station catch on fire, so you call in a gas tanker. And finally, this is good actually, is not a take I found in my research. Instead, this was found in my earlier days getting into Facebook arguments. So let me tell you, it will be the most shameful thing I will ever say on this or any podcast or show I am ever on. And that includes, in the last episode, where I run off the names of three porn stars I know, referenced hentai, and called Uncle Sam Daddy. Or this episode, where I said I jerk into food of porn and, make, and made cringy school shooter jokes. But anyways, the amount of gun violence denial I saw was insane. There was like the Fox News denial you see sometimes where people say, actually, statistically, this isn't nearly as much of an issue as obesity and drug addiction. But what I saw was another level. 
planning false flag attacks like Alex Jones, fake obituaries, and that literally no gun owner has ever killed someone that didn't deserve it. Think about that. This person drives to work. They go grocery shopping. They pee in a toilet. They live in a house. I've seen them at the DMV. Now, I, I hope I don't have to explain why this is a bad idea. The thing that I think will segue nicely on my soapboxing is, of course, why are we putting band-aids on bullet wounds? What this camp is all about is addressing the root causes of gun violence and solving that. Such as addressing gang-related gun violence by having community outreach, better welfare systems, even stuff like student athletics and latchkey programs. Well, I think that's the right solution and think it's the best idea, there's problems. Like how, for example, we mostly have no idea why gun violence happens, especially mass shootings. And there's theories and common threads. For the most part, it looks like some kind of cultural thing mixed with volatile psychology. Also, we can't solve people getting pissed after drinking 14 beers and chilies and shooting out the parking lot because they got kicked out. That's a personal issue that needs therapy. But hey, we can address the general feeling of hopelessness that caused people to resort to violence. I mean, maybe. It is the United States in the 2020s, so we might just be fucked there. But anyways, I'm itching to get to my soapbox, so let's do that. So what do I think about guns? Well, one, they're fucking awesome. I have only been shooting once in my life, but it was amazing and I would love to do it again. Guns are a big part of my life as a writer, and you know, also something I know a decent amount about. And gun violence? I mean, obviously terrible. And while it's tempting to virtue signal and agree with one camp or another, I actually don't think that the gun problem particularly falls on any one person. We as a society need to educate ourselves on these things so we aren't scared by them, or have these deeply wound emotional ties that stop us from actually having a conversation like fucking adults. But also, gun owners have a responsibility to keep their guns somewhere safe and treated with respect and gravity a machine designed to snuff out life deserves. They need to be treated like weapons, while most gun owners I personally know are very careful and will even hand over their guns if they feel particularly unstable or unhappy. A good number of gun owners don't care. And I think being irresponsible with a gun deserves the legal equivalent of a cock kick with a boot filled with rusty nails. I'm extremely supportive of extremely harsh punishments for carelessness, because even if no one died this time, we can't have dumbasses with a tool that could end dozens of lives. Do I think the solution is? We address the root causes of what we can fix, like poverty and general feelings of hopelessness, as much as that's going to be nearly impossible anyways, and punish stupid as harsh as stupid deserves. But what I see over and over again from politicians and people in the public? Fucking grandstanding and screaming and talking. No action, no discussion, nothing. Just an all-or-nothing war for dominance over the corpses of actual people that actually matter and give more value than just shouting half-witted political opinions. And I used to be no better. And I'm only nominally not a worthless dickhead in this realm. I'm on a podcast, for fuck's sake. I got a research one, but I'm still just another asshole shouting his opinion. And at the core, though, this is something that needs to be addressed. And you know why? Because I learned in fourth grade that some people, for no reason at all, hate me and all my classmates and want us to die violent deaths in fear. Since fourth grade, I've been aware of school shootings. In junior high, we had drills constantly 
about how to handle a school shooting. We had people, teachers were worried about being school shooters. And many of us thought about and discussed places we would want to be when the shooter comes. Think about that. 13 years old, realizing that they were in the hallway in front of the front office, they die in a school shooting. And we weren't talking about it if, it was when. In high school, the threat became so real that a lot of kids hid guns in their trucks and carried knives. Teachers had action plans for how to save their students' lives. I had a teacher literally tell us that if it came down to it, he would jump on the gunman and hope he was fat enough to survive the bullet wounds and strong enough to hold him down while we escaped. A man with a wife and two children under 10 said that. A man who after four years might never see us again. He saw our fear and loved us enough to tell us he'd die for us. In college, at both community college and university, if a truck backfired, people paused. You know why? Because we're waiting to hear screams or see someone drop dead. 18 to 24 year olds. People who should be carefree and happy to be on campus and alive would pause at loud noises to see if any of their classmates dropped dead in front of them. Even now, after graduation, I don't stay anywhere if I think it's a death trap. My last place of employment's workstation was small enough that a single shotgun blast would kill me instantly. I had an action plan if I heard gunshots, but I'm also well aware that I would be the first victim. I don't go to the park, the grocery store, to the fucking nerd shop, without an escape plan or a fight plan. And that is fucking unacceptable. While I can agree or disagree about the methodology someone has about controlling gun violence and ensuring guns are handled responsibly, I don't care what the answer is anymore. I can be a snarky asshole on the podcast, but I will say right now, do anything. I am begging you specifically, do anything. Anything but talk. I'm open to trying. Ban everything? Fine. No assault weapons? Sure. Arm the teachers? Let's try it. Anything but what we've gotten, which is nothing. If I could have exactly what I want, gun ownership would be a license that you need to upkeep for a particular list of gun categories. You come in to demonstrate your skill and care, maintenance, use, and responsible storage, say, every five years. You do it well, you keep the gun. You fuck up, it's gone. You commit violent crime? Gone. And when you go to a gun store, you show them an in-date license and you're good to buy that kind of gun. Is that perfect? No, absolutely not. What I'm ultimately getting at is I don't care what happens, but as a living, breathing human being that is just as confused and scared and terrified as you are, try something. Okay, let's get going. This episode's gone a bit long. All right. Hopefully another fun episode in the bag. Uh, who knew guns were so complicated? Uh, thank you for sticking it out and listening to my voice. Even if it's just background noise, it's appreciated. I hope you learned something, laughed, cried, or held that you're typing an angry email right now. Regardless of how you feel about it, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to me. Don't forget, wherever you're listening, to subscribe to the podcast feed. Like it, leave a review, all of that. And send me an email at waytentpods at gmail.com. That is W-A-Y-T-A-T-P-O-D-S at gmail.com. Tell me your gun, your opinion, a correction, your cock, your tits, and your cooch. Especially if it's all at once. Kidding? Maybe. But kidding.
But feel free to send an email, even just to check in or having conversation. It'd be great to hear from you. Remember to check out my other podcast, Wait at Nerd, where I do basically the same thing, but with nerd topics like fantasy, sci-fi, role-playing games, etc. Where the episode topics aren't usually as sad, but are just as soul-crushing. Alright, have a good night, don't murder, have fun, and if you partake, tip your gunsmith. This has been Why Aren't You Talking About This, and I've been your host, William. Good night.